Let's pray. Father, um, I reiterate Jason's prayer and ask that you would move in our midst. Holy Spirit, that you would, from within us, manifest yourself more greatly in our lives by speaking to us, showing us more of Jesus and the Father through the word that we would love you, our triune God, more. Do that mighty work. It's only by the power of you, Holy Spirit, that this can be done. Open our eyes to see. Change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So Dave and his wife, Pauline, had a good life. They had two kids, a dog, and they lived in a nice one-story house on, the, on a corner lot in Dallas. And uh, David done well as a financial broker. That is, an, until one unexpected afternoon when he was fired for an honest and yet massive mistake. Because word travels fast, Dave couldn't find any kind of work in the same profession. And the only job he could manage to find was, well, flipping burgers. As if that weren't bad enough. A few weeks after he had lost his job, Dave and his wife found out that one of his small children had cancer. It seemed like no time had passed at all before all the savings were gone and his house was in danger of being repossessed. The stress of a sick child, of insufficient income, a growing pile of medical bills began to take their toll on his marriage. It seemed like all they did was fight anymore. This was not the way it was supposed to be. He felt as if God had abandoned him, like he was an orphan. He was filled with fear. His heart was disquieted amid all the adversity. Life as he knew it was gone, and so too was his peace. What is a Christian to do when the world he or she knows falls apart? What are we to do in the day of trouble? And life is filled with troubles isn't it? Relational troubles, whether they be loved ones, family, or friends, a marriage on the rock, on the rocks, prodigal children, friends that have hurt you, health troubles such as an injury, sickness, disease, a spouse that's dying, a child with an illness that requires frequent treatments that only seem to kick the can down the road a little further, the death of a loved one, financial troubles like the loss of a job or health care benefits, unexpected expenses, inflation, societal troubles, war in the Middle East, government shutdowns, protests, political turmoil here in the United States. There is an abundance of things that each and every one of us can be troubled over right now, and many, many more that await. If we're honest, 
we often feel like orphans. Like God has left us to navigate this world and its troubles on our own. Yes, Jesus saved us, but then he ascended to heaven, and it just often doesn't feel like he's paying attention to all of my struggles and my needs here and now. It was no different for the disciples, as Solomon says. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? They'd, be follow, they'd been following Jesus for years, and now, as they sat around the table that evening, he says to them, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Peter, somewhat confused, said, Lord, where are you going? To which Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Obviously, Peter was pretty troubled by these words, so he responds, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. You know, Peter's words probably reflected the sentiment of all of the disciples around the table at that moment. They'd dedicated their lives to Jesus and his ministry for nearly three years now. They'd been, they'd seen his amazing, miraculous healing powers. He'd healed the paralyzed slave of a centurion, an unclean hemorrhaging woman, a leper, and a myriad of others. And he even raised several people from the dead. Through him, the blind had received their sight, the lame walked, lepers were cleansed, and the deaf heard, the dead were raised up, and the poor had good news preached to them, according to Luke. In him, they'd witnessed a kindness and a compassion like no other, serving and caring for the sick, the needy, the foreigner, proclaiming liberty to the captives, binding the wounds of the afflicted, and comforting the brokenhearted, irrespective of person. He'd even hung out with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, and yet he never condoned their sin. He was so genial and winsome and approachable that even little children flocked to him. Time and again, these disciples had heard his words and experienced his tender, loving care, not only to others, but for their souls and lives as well. They'd never known such love, such tenderness, such kindness, such mercy, and meekness, and devotion, and, and purity, and graciousness, and authority. His presence was like the presence of sunshine. They never, ever met anyone like him. They would follow him to the ends of the earth. But now, now, now he tells them that he's leaving and that they can't come with him. He's going away. He's going to die. And they're going to go undergo severe persecution from here on out. And guess what? He's not going to be there in the flesh for them to turn to for help and comfort. What 
are they going to do when the world that they know falls apart? In that day of trouble, their hearts are troubled. They're filled with fear, anxiety, hopelessness. Their souls are downcast, bereft of peace. They felt as though they were being orphaned. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, gently says, Let not your heart be troubled. Why? Why would he tell them this now? Well, he says, just a few moments later, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Notice the world gives, I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What are you and I to do when the world that we know is falling apart in the day of trouble. In such times when our hearts are troubled, when we're feel, fear, filled with fear, anxiety, hopelessness, when our souls are downcast and bereft of peace, and Jesus says to you, peace, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Well, how? How? How can we experience and enjoy Jesus' peace amid all of life's troubles? Well, the answer is stated clearly and simply by Jesus here. In the very next verse, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So there you go. Believe in God. Believe in Jesus. Amen. Nice short sermon today. Let's pray. <laughs> Obviously, we need some clarification, don't we? No, I know the disciples did. And thankfully, Jesus spends the next three plus chapters telling us, explaining to us what this involves. Now, in this brief answer, believe in God, believe also in me, what he does do is he introduces and encompasses everything that's about to follow. If you were to look at the verb tense here, it says, keep on believing in God, keep on believing in me. So it's an active, persistent trust that's being spoken of. It's an active, ongoing relationship with Jesus and the Father that Jesus is prescribing here. It's union and communion with Him. So how can we experience and enjoy Jesus' peace we can experience and enjoy deep-seated peace in this world through union and communion with God the Father and Jesus by the Holy Spirit. That's what he explains here in chapters 14 through 16. You can experience and enjoy deep-seated peace in this world amid all your troubles through union 
and communion with God the Father and Jesus by the Holy Spirit. So I want you to notice my reference to three distinct persons, the three distinct persons of the triune God, the Father, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus refers to each of them more than a dozen times, each of them more than a dozen times in this discourse. So the truth of God's triune nature underlies everything that Jesus is teaching in these verses. This is the key to understanding peace in the midst of our trouble. This is why it's important to have at least a basic understanding of the triune nature of God to get the most out of that passage. You guys will see in your notes, I've included a small little half-page insert um, that will help as well because I could and I have spent entire sermons breaking that down, but not the place for this morning. You'll notice that I said the triune nature of God. That's because triunity is an aspect of the nature of the one and only God. There's only one divine being in all of existence. There are no others. He is eternal, immortal, immutable, almighty, and infinite. He and only he is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, sovereign, and holy, And this one God is also triune. That is, this one God exists or reveals himself as eternally existing in three distinct, coexistent, co-equal, co-eternal persons. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is an eternally distinct person. The Son, an eternally distinct person. The Holy Spirit, an eternally distinct person. And these three persons are the one God. The Father is truly God. The Son is truly God. The Holy Spirit is truly God. And yet there are not three gods, but one God. There are three who's, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and one what? Three persons, one being. And from all eternity, in all eternity, through all eternity, these three divine persons have communed in perfect, unbroken fellowship and matchless, infinite love with and to one another. In these chapters, Jesus explains how each of these three persons is distinctly and intimately involved in your salvation, in your joy, in your preservation, your assurance and your peace. Yes. (laughs) Let me say that one again. He says how these three persons are distinctly and intimately involved in your salvation, your joy, your preservation, your assurance, and your peace. Apart from the cooperative work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't have any of these benefits. Not a one. And apart from union and communion with them, we will fail to experience or enjoy these benefits. An understanding of God's triune nature is eminently practical 
It's not this heady theological thing. Well, I don't understand, so I don't. Jesus is showing how this is so important to your understanding, to your peace, to everything that you're going through. All three persons, the one God. How they impact us and how we can relate to each of them. One more thing as a foundational principle. Having peace doesn't mean that we don't feel sorrow. Having peace doesn't mean that we don't feel sadness or tremendous pain. It doesn't mean that suffering is not still suffering. This is peace amid trials and tribulations. Peace despite what's happening around you and to you. It's about not letting your heart be troubled or afraid in the midst of external troubles of this world. It's about knowing the peace of God in Christ by the Holy Spirit while experiencing the God-given emotions that are appropriate under His sovereignly ordained circumstances. That was a sentence, wasn't it? <laughs> Listen to that again. It's about knowing the peace of God in Christ by the Holy Spirit while experiencing the God-given emotions that are appropriate under His sovereignly ordained circumstances. This isn't about emotions, but where emotions can lead in your heart. They can lead to fear, dissatisfaction, shame, anger, guilt, anxiety, distress, despair, worry, indifference, hopelessness. But peace is inner rest. It's security. It's quietness, comfort, assurance. It's heartfelt contentment despite what's going on around you. It's a state of harmony with God in a very disharmonious world. Say disharmonious ten times fast. So with these foundations in place, let's look at some of the ways we can experience and enjoy more of Jesus' peace amid all our troubles. We're going to see that we can experience this in four things by contemplating and anticipating the reality of heaven, by rejoicing in our union with Jesus and the Father, by realizing that union with God means that He was always with you and in you, and by communing with Jesus and the Father through seeking the help of the Holy Spirit. So let's take a quick look at each of these. First, we can experience and enjoy more of Jesus' peace amid our troubles by contemplating and anticipating the reality of heaven. Heard about a man from Michigan who was affectionately called Uncle John. 
for those who loved him and knew him. Uncle John lived to the ripe old age of 106. He seemed just like this exceedingly joyful man to all who knew him. It's reported that one day his pastor dropped by to visit the aged man and was surprised to find him at work in his garden singing praises to God loudly. Pastor inquired as to the source of John's seemingly always joyful disposition. Uncle John said this, You know, Pastor, I've, I've seen a lot in my 106 years of life. I've experienced many highs and many lows. I've known happiness. I've known beauty, rejoicing, <laughs> and love. And I've known much pain and heartache, sorrow and suffering. And one day many years ago, it dawned on me that all of those times of good and love and pleasure and beauty is what heaven must be like, only a zillion times better. As the good word says, Pastor, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart even imagined what God has prepared for those of us who love him. And it's that thought of heaven that fills me with joy and peace and helps me to put the times of pain and sadness into perspective, knowing that someday it'll all be worth it. We can experience and enjoy more of Jesus' peace amid our troubles by contemplating and anticipating the reality of heaven. So the first place that Jesus turns in this instruction to bolster the disciples' hearts and encourage them to believe in God is heaven. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Now, what's fascinating is how Jesus describes heaven here. It's this picture that he describes that is meant to strengthen their belief and steady their hearts. So let's look at what he says. He says, first he describes heaven as my father's house. <laughs> and oh, what a house it is. In Revelation, we read some of the description that its radiance is like a most rare jewel, like jasper clear crystal. Its streets and walls are even made of gold. Gold so pure you can even see through it. But Jesus doesn't talk about those things here. Rather, he simply describes heaven as his father's. Because all of those things that I just described are simply reflections of the glory of something else. The glory of God. The floors and walls made of gold and precious gemstones are only beautiful 
because they reflect the radiance and glory of the one who made them, his father. Mm. Now it appears that Jesus wants to assure the disciples that there's plenty of room for them there and that they'll be included. And so he says that there are many rooms and that the reason he's leaving is to prepare a place for each of them. That's a weird saying. It's not as if Jesus is going to paint the walls, scrub the floors. He is not taking up carpentry again. There are already many rooms. So what he means by preparing a place is that there is currently no place for them. Not because there aren't enough rooms or enough space, but because the doors are barred to all who are not fit and worthy to be there. All who are not holy. There is no access into the Father's house or presence for sinners because the Father is of purer eyes than to look upon sin. At that point in time, as Jesus is speaking to these disciples, no one is able to come to the Father or have union with Him besides Jesus. A way had to be made. Access to the Father's abode had to be prepared. But Thomas, he doesn't get it. And so he says, Lord, um, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? (laughs) How could Thomas not know where Jesus was going? Jesus just said, or did he? He actually didn't. He said, immediately, I'm just going to prepare a place. But, 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 but where, but. Well, in typical fashion, Jesus doesn't answer the question directly. Isn't that interesting? Jesus, I think I heard that two times out of the hundreds of places Jesus has asked questions, does he actually answer it directly? Because there's so much more than what our little fickle minds can ask. Well, what about this? Oh, let me show you a bigger picture. So Jesus responds to Thomas, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So Jesus ties all of this conversation together here. The way, the only way to come to the Father, to get into the Father's house and into the Father's presence is Jesus himself. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. The only way to have union with the Father is through union with Jesus. And that is why Jesus says that he is not only going to prepare a place for them, but that he will come again Take them to himself, that where I am, you may be also. 
Do you see what's going on here? Where is Jesus going to prepare a place? The cross. How does Jesus prepare a place? By going to the cross to pay for their sin and impute his righteousness to them. Eric talked about it in communion. Impute his righteousness to you. By reconciling them and us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, he knocks on the Father's door and says, Dad, look! And what does he see? He sees Jesus' righteousness on you. His clothes, pure as snow, on you. Oh, he can come in. He can come in. Gives chills, doesn't it? And once he's made preparation, he himself is coming personally. So you don't just show up to the door. Jesus is coming to grab you and say, hey, come on. And he holds you close to himself and he walks up to the door. What? That's why Jesus is not a way. The way. Which points out a second truth. We can experience and enjoy Jesus' peace amid all our troubles by rejoicing in our union with Jesus and the Father. Heard a story of a missionary who was going to do to do ministry at a remote village somewhere in the middle of the Amazon forest. So when this missionary arrived at the closest town to the village, he was given a guide to take him the rest of the way because the only access to the village was by walking through the jungle. As they headed into the forest, the, the path quickly vanished amid this dense wall of vines and undergrowth. And so the guide pulled out his machete and started chopping away, taking him through the forest. He got further and further in, and the missionary kind of got nervous. Um, um, are you sure this is the way? <laughs> I mean, I don't see any path. Where is the path? The guide replied, I am the path. I am the way, just follow me. The guy didn't make a way, he was the way. He couldn't say, just go there, go there, go there. There's no way. The missionary had to cling closely to the guide in order to get there. Now, I must admit that this illustration is profoundly lacking. It's a fun illustration. It really is. 
I had remembered the story from years ago. I was like, that's, that's a good illustration. But I am the path. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's lacking. Why? I want you to listen to Jesus' words again here. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you will be also. Do you hear the intimacy and the assuredness of these words? He's taking them to himself, to where he is that they may also be. Jesus isn't just taking them to a place and dropping them off like the guide or your friendly neighborhood Uber driver. He's drawing them to himself so that they will all end up in the same place together, doing what? Enjoying fellowship with one another forever. It's a picture of union with Jesus. You see, their hearts were troubled. Why? Because Jesus was leaving them. They wanted to be with him. He is the way because he is the life. In his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper asks, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked, mm, this sounded good, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, I'll add, and all the movies you ever liked, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? How about you? Would you? Could you be satisfied with heaven if God and Christ we're not there. You see, heaven isn't about what's there, but who's there. Heaven is great because it is the dwelling of the triune God. The gospel is good news, not merely because God will rescue us from hell, but because he rescues us to himself. Relationship. Union. The gospel is about the restoration of relationship to God by God. It's good news ultimately because we can enjoy God Himself like we never could before. Mm. Heaven is the place of unhindered, undiminished relationship with God. It's in this place where they and we will find the consummation of reconciliation with him, 
where they and we will experience the fullness of relationship that we were meant to have when God designed and created us on the sixth day. You see, all those cool features about heaven will pale in comparison to the moment we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Those streets of gold that we make so much about, guess what we're going to do? That's the asphalt of heaven, people. We are going to run over that to run into the arms of Jesus. Gold schmold. Thanks for putting gold roads here so I could run to you, Jesus. Heaven is so glorious and satisfying because the triune God is there. And we get to enjoy him more and more and more and more forever. You know, people often complain about Jesus' exclusive claim here. How narrow-minded is it of him to assert that he's the only way to heaven? People who make this complaint just don't understand heaven. They want another way because they think heaven is a place where they can have all of their earthly idolatrous desires met. And they'd be perfectly content, probably overjoyed, if God in Christ were not there. Who needs him? All this other stuff. That's not heaven, folks. Jesus is the only way because relationship, union with him and through him with the rest of the Godhead is the destination. Unfettered communion with the triune God, with God the Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit is the ultimate goal of heaven. That's what heaven is. The other stuff is just window dressing. I kept trying to think of window dressing all week. And I was like, what is that word? I can't think of that. I just thought of it. So, <laughs> You know, Uncle John realized that all of the pleasures and delights of this life were only reflections of glory. They were penultimate. You see, the one who makes canyons grand and waters fall, who makes the stars to shine, who gives to everything its beauty and its glory and its goodness, who is the origin of all joy and pleasure and delight, the fountain of gladness, the source of peace and security is God. He is our final, ultimate, heavenly reward. Someday we will become satiated upon God in Christ as he pours out that eternal, infinite, triune love that he has enjoyed for all of eternity with one another on you.
And so, contemplate heaven. Let its eternal hope fill you with joy and peace and put the times of pain and sadness into perspective so that your heart is not troubled. Or as Paul says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction. Boy, it doesn't feel so light. When you compare it to heaven, it's light, momentary. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. But that can't be all of it, can it? Remember their hearts were troubled as a result of the news that Jesus was leaving. It felt to them like they would soon be all alone in this world. This seems to be the motivation behind Philip's request in verse 8. He's like, Lord, if you would just show us the Father, that would be plenty. That'll be enough for us. Just show us the face of God. You know, like Moses. Philip is searching for something that will get him through the tough times once Jesus leaves. If he could just have some kind of glorious vision of God like Moses did, then when times get, get troublesome, he can think back, oh, I remember, remember when we saw God? So I should be comforted right now. Oh, but I feel so bad, but there was God? That's what Philip thinks will comfort him. That will be enough that my heart won't be troubled. <sighs> What's missing? Relationship. Relationship. If you're just thinking back to some event in the past and trying to get through this life without ongoing, persistent, relational trust in God, you'll be troubled. So what is Jesus' answer to this? To this troubling, persistent doubt of the disciples, of being all alone, feeling like orphans in the midst of all our trials and adversities here? I'm going to read you the answer, but as I read Jesus' answer, I want you to listen intently. These are some of the sweetest, most important words 
ever spoken in the history of the world. I want you to drink them in. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot said to him, but, but, but Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? I'm confused. You see, and what, what he's thinking is, if you're this tangible being that will manifest itself to us, then it would seem to me that the entire world would be able to see you too, Jesus. I'm just saying. So how does this work? that you will be manifest to us, but not to the world? Jesus answers him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your hearts be troubled. And to let them be afraid. So there it is. There it is. The peace that Jesus has left with us, the peace that Jesus has given to those who love him, is the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit. Spirit, fully divine God, the Holy Spirit. He is the manifestation of Jesus Christ to you. 
Holy Spirit is the manifestation of Jesus Christ to you. It is how Jesus manifests himself to us. He is called the Spirit of Christ. Now, he's not a fan of uh, a physical manifestation as Judas was looking for. And yet he is just as real. Just as good and lovely. Just as much God, and he dwells with you and in you. Remember, the disciples had to wait, right? Holy Spirit would not come to them until after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that's why he said, we'll be with you. But we're, we're on the other side, folks. Hallelujah. Therefore, anyone who loves Jesus, anyone who believes in Jesus, trusts in Jesus, who has union with Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is with you and is in you. He is communing with us. Through union with Jesus, you are in him and he is in you. Those who love Jesus are loved by the Father and by Jesus. And Jesus has manifested himself to them in the Holy Spirit. I know I'm saying it a lot of times because it's important. This is our third point. You can receive and enjoy more of Jesus' peace amid all your troubles by realizing that union with God means that he is always with you and always in you. Now, there's more information here than what I've said. More information about what this manifestation actually entails. As this promise comes directly after Jesus' response to Philip's request. What was that request? Show us the power! That'll be enough. Jesus says, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. It's an interesting last line. Philip, Jesus is saying, don't you see, Philip? You said, show us the Father I already have. You're asking for a manifestation of God to assuage your fear and doubt. And yet for years now, the presence of God has been manifest to you in me. Think about it, Philip. The amazing, miraculous powers, touching and healing the leper and raising the dead, 
Through me, the blind received their sight, the lame walked, lepers were cleansed, and the deaf heard. The dead were raised up, and the poor had good news preached to them. The kindness and compassion like no other, serving and caring for the sick, sinful, needy, and foreigner, proclaiming liberty to the captives, binding the wounds of the afflicted, and comforting the brokenhearted. Do you remember that? The love, the tenderness, the kindness, and the mercy, and the meekness, and purity, graciousness, and authority that I'd shown not only to others, but to you, Philip. Do you remember? Was my presence not like the presence of sunshine? Have you ever met anyone like me? Do you think you'll ever meet anyone like me again, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the manifestation of the Father and the person of the Son. He is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His being. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As Jesus is the manifestation of the presence and glory of the Father, so the Holy Spirit is the manifestation of the presence and glory of Jesus. And he is with you and in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. As Jesus is the manifestation of the presence and glory of the Father. Manifest the Father for us. Jesus is like, I, yep. I will manifest myself to you when I'm gone. How? I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. Christ in you, the hope of glory, with you and in you always. Why not? Let your heart be troubled. Why not let your heart be afraid? Because you are not an orphan. Christian, you are not an orphan. You are not an orphan. You are not an orphan and will never be an orphan. There will never, ever be a time when the presence of Jesus is not with you and in you by the Holy Spirit. Which means there will never be a time that you are not in Christ and Christ in you. 
The triune God is manifest in you and to you at all times and in every moment. Just as Jesus, as if Jesus were standing here in the flesh or the Father would appear. Just as if Jesus were standing here right now. Okay, get this. This is not in the sermon. If Jesus were physically here on earth, let's say he's over in Jerusalem. Okay, we're going to take a, a, a trek. We're going to go and we're going to get to see Jesus. We're going to have like five minutes with him. And then we come home. And what are we going to feel like? That was cool. We got to see the glory of God for like five minutes. But Jesus left. So that he could manifest his very presence, his glory to you. At every moment of every day. For your entire Christian lives. <sighs> if you are a believer, if you love Jesus and have been united to him by faith, then the Spirit of God is with you. And in you, right now. Now, although this is all true, we all know that it often doesn't feel this way. Huh. Anybody go, uh-huh. Uh-huh. That is, although through our union with Christ, God is manifest to us, at all times and in everywhere, we still often feel like orphans. We still feel like he's left us alone. He is an absent father. And in those moments, we don't feel peace. In those moments, our hearts are troubled and we're afraid. This is why communion with God the Father and Jesus by the Holy Spirit is essential for deep-seated peace. Which leads us to our final point. You can experience and enjoy more of Jesus' peace amid all your troubles by communing with Jesus and the Father through seeking the help of the Holy Spirit. You see, as I indicated at the beginning, this is about persistent relationship with God, which means that we need to have persistent relationship with God. Capiche? That's a shocker, huh? You mean, okay, let me get this right. So you're saying we need to have like persistent relationship with God. No, that doesn't make much sense. This peace comes in our ongoing relationship with him. And that's one of the primary reasons why Jesus gave us the Spirit, to urge us and aid us in our day-to-day -day communion with God. Jesus here describes the Holy Spirit as a paraclete. That's the Greek word. And it's often translated as 
counselor or helper or comforter. It literally means one who is called alongside. And this is the Spirit's function, often. Jesus said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So we, we need someone to come alongside of us and teach us those things, obviously. When we seek the Spirit of God in communion with Him, one of the things that He does is teach us and remind us about the truths Jesus taught and taught about, even the ones we're covering this morning, which is really good for my assurance, because I need that. So I want you to think, as we've looked at many of the verses in this passage, think of all the relational terms spread throughout Jesus' words here. Believe appears six times. Come five times. Know, as in know me, relationally, six times. Love, ten times. Jesus is teaching us about how we can have right relationship with God. And the Holy Spirit is reminding us and teaching us so that we can enjoy more of that communion with Jesus and the Father here and now. That we would love the Father and Jesus more now and believe them more now and abide in them more now and commune with them more now. Why? Because we need peace. We need help. We need that love. And I can't generate it myself. Can you? Everybody say no. All right. Now, here in the passage, Jesus is talking about commandments. If you love me, You'll keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him. Let me ask you a question. In each of these statements, what is the root and what is the fruit? Which is the source and which is the result? Obedience is a result of love. Keeping Jesus' commands is the fruit of love for Jesus. Keeping his commandments is not love for Jesus. It is an expression of love for Jesus. It begins with love and then manifests itself outward. The root is love. The fruit is obedience. Don't confuse the two. Now, that being said, love without obedience, <laughs> as well as, yeah, I love you. 
Love without obedience is false, just as obedience without love is futile. Genuine love will result in keeping Jesus' words. Which begs a question. What are the words and commands that Jesus is referencing here? Most of us probably assume that it's the Ten Commandments or the other 613 laws that some of which proceed from the nature of God. All of the moral ones. But that would be a mistaken assumption. Remember the context of this passage. What is it? Relationship. Now, what are the immediate commands in this passage? In this context right here. Well, number one is believe in God. That's one of the commands. One of the other ones is believe also in me. Don't be troubled. Don't be afraid. So those are the commands of the passage. And the other commandments that he gives in this gathering, so remember we're three, four chapters here. There's, there's a couple others. Chapter 15, abide in me. Chapter 15, abide in my love. Remember my words. Take heart. Huh. Uh, what about the rest of the commands, like the ones that were prior to this? In chapter 12, believe in the light. Follow me. You guys starting to pick up on a theme anywhere? The commands are relational commands. As a matter of fact, if you were to do a study of the entirety of the Gospel of John, it's easy when you have logos like me, you would find that all of the commands of Jesus to his disciples were relational terms like these. Huh. Love for Jesus results in following him. Huh. Love for Jesus results in belief in the Father and Him. Loving Jesus results in abiding in Him. Abiding in Jesus is a genuine expression of your love for Him. That is cool. Because we could take these verses and really pile it on and say, well, I, I broke the fifth commandment, so I must not love Jesus. The commands he's talking about. Follow me. Follow me. Because we're going to mess all the other ones up. Love me. How? Follow me. Believe in me. Okay, I blew it again. Follow me. Come to me. Love me again. It's okay. Let's do it again. This is what the Spirit of God is here 
to remind you of and to help you to do. This is what the Holy Spirit is here to remind you of and help you to do. Persistent trust in Jesus. Oh, but I fell and oh, I sinned again. Holy Spirit's there. Jesus, thank you for your spirit. Thank you. Thank you for preparing a place for us and then loving us so much that you gave us the spirit to be with us. God with us. Christ in us the hope of glory. May we experience the peace and the rest that comes with this truth. Help us to commune with the Spirit and through the Spirit with you, Jesus, and you, Heavenly Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.